0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the Global Church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Putting Off Vice, Putting On Virtue, Becoming Truly Holy and Fully Human. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August the 9th, 2009. Last month, the five, Last month marked the 500th anniversary of the birth of John Calvin, July 10, 1509. When I was in grad school, I took one of my comprehensive exams on the French reformer. Calvin trained as a lawyer and impressed many people as a stern person. At the College of Montague in Paris, for example, his classmates nicknamed him the accusative case. And in his empathetic biography, Calvin's friend and successor, Theodore Beza, once described Calvin as, quote, a strict censor of everything vicious in his companions. End quote. I enjoyed my brief work on Calvin, but I still cringe at his attempts in Geneva to legislate personal, personal virtue. Consider this example from his book, Ordinances for the Supervision of Churches in the Country. If anyone sings songs that are unworthy, dissolute, or outrageous, or spin wildly round in the dance or the like, he is to be imprisoned for three days and then sent on to the consistory. It wasn't long, as you can well imagine, before the magistrates and free spirits in Geneva soured on Calvin's reform program. And so on April 23, 1538, they expelled him and his colleague William Farrell from the city. The difficulties of legislating morality don't mean that we should go to the opposite extreme and reject virtue codes as repressive, puritanical, outmoded, or irrelevant. A few years ago, Oxford University Press published a series of books on the seven deadly sins. One book each on anger, sloth, gluttony, lust, envy, greed, and pride. Each one of which was originally presented in a lecture series at the New York Public Library. But the but the books are not what you might expect. Francine Prose considers gluttony as a religious sin and as a medical compulsion, but nevertheless concludes that we should celebrate it as an occasion for passion and pleasure. Joseph Epstein downgrades envy from sin to what he calls poor mental hygiene. Eric Michael Dyson writes that pride is not only the fundamental sin, but also the crown of the virtues and even a stroke of moral genius. Simon Blackburn, a philosopher at Cambridge University, complains that lust gets a bad press. He believes that it's not merely useful, but essential. In his brief review of this Oxford series, Stephen Prothero concludes that the books will probably appeal to readers who sacrifice traditional categories of virtue and vice in favor of what they think is freedom. The problem here, though, is evident in the wisdom of the Catholic writer Flannery O'Connor. O'Connor once wrote, The catholic novelist believes that you destroy your freedom by sin. The modern reader believes that you gain your freedom in that way. Left to our own vices, a world without virtue would be a bleak and terrifying place. Writing to the Christians in Ephesus in modern-day Turkey, Paul describes people in Ephesians 4 who are futile in their thinking, darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Hardened hearts, gross insensitivity, flagrant indulgence, and insatiable desire. We don't need to read Paul as generalizing about every human being to find contemporary expressions of his ancient words. Our abuse of the environment, misogynist rap lyrics, the will to war, consumerism, corporate greed, internet pornography, bare-knuckle politics. Instead of legislating virtue, Paul appeals to the Ephesians to undertake a moral movement from the old to the new, from darkness to light, from childishness to maturity, and from foolishness to wisdom. In particular, he invokes a metaphor that's so common in the New Testament that some scholars believe that it might come from an early version of catechetical instruction. Paul tells the Ephesians to, quote-unquote, put off their old self, as if to remove a filthy garment, and to put on their new self, which, says Paul, is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Instead of reading Paul's exhortations as legalistic commands that restrict my freedom, I like to think of them as promises that will transform my life. They're gifts of grace to receive, not goals to achieve. Imagine a politician who put off partisan propaganda and put on truth-telling, Ephesians 4.25. Think about a parent who moved from compulsive anger to gentleness, 4.26. Or a corporate criminal who made restitution and shared generously with others, Ephesians 4.28. Or again, I'd love to see a musician who realized how badly raunchy lyrics degrade our communities, 4.29. Who would not want long to live in a society described in Ephesians 4:31 and 32, where bitterness, rage, anger, slander, and every form of malice were rare exceptions instead of the moral status quo, and where instead kindness, compassion, and forgiveness ruled the day? On the journey with Jesus such dreams can become reality, at least in part. I dare say you can find examples right beside you in the pew at church on Sunday. When we soft-pedal the language of virtue and vice, as Prothero, and sacrifice notions of sin in the name of freedom, we lose something We lose, says Prothero, a sense that something is missing from this world, that awareness of the incompleteness and unsatisfactoriness that St. Augustine took for evidence of another life, and that saints from Mary to Mother Teresa have taken as a charge to make this life conform to our imaginations of the next. Say what you want about the vices of the dogma of sin. One of its virtues has always been to remind us that we, all of us, live between the animals and the gods, that one of the unappreciated challenges of human life is somehow to become a human being. As imitators of God, Ephesians five one, we enjoy the hope of becoming truly, if not perfectly, holy and in the process becoming fully human. And for further reflection, how do you read our culture when it comes to virtue and vice? Have you had any experiences with puritanical legislation of virtue? Or, on the other hand, libertine dismissals of virtue? How do we confuse personal virtue with sanctimony and moralism? And finally, what do you think Prothero means, that we all live between the animals and the gods? For books this week, we have a guest book review. The name of the book is My Own Country, a doctor's story of a town and its people in the age of AIDS. The author is Abraham Verghese, New York: Simon & Schuster 1994, 352 pages. My Own Country, a guest book review by Katie Finley. In the 25 years since the AIDS epidemic began its deadly march through human history we may have forgotten the way things were at the beginning. The incomplete knowledge of the disease, the lack of any effective treatment, and certainly the prejudice against those who were infected. Abraham Verghese wrote of his experience as the sole infectious disease physician in his area of eastern Tennessee, a lovely semi-rural foothills area, Johnson City was the place young men left for big-city life on the coasts. They made their way back, though, there in the early 1980s, sick with the disease that caused fever, weakness, cancerous sores, rapid weight loss, and, inevitably, death. Dr. Verghese is a gifted writer who creates detailed, full-colored portraits of his patients. He carries the reader beyond the stereotypes that that many have of gay men, hillbillies, hemophiliacs, and church ladies. He also reflects on how his identity as a foreigner both aided and hindered his medical practice in that area. He was born of Indian parents, and raised in Ethiopia. This book is a very personal memoir, weaving the story of his frustration at losing patients to death, and his deteriorating marriage into the story of the medical details of the illnesses and the community's responses. Ignorance and fear of transmission cause locals to condemn and shun those who were infected. Christian faith is shown in a three-dimensional light, not only with accounts of people sneering that the disease is God's punishment, but also with accounts of how faith in God gave people courage to face a terrible death or provided compassion to care for the sick. His account reminds us that the current-day HIV-AIDS situation in parts of Africa is similar. Limited medical resources, fear and prejudice, but also faith, and dignity. Abraham Verkezy, My Own Country, a guest book review by Katie Finlay. For film this week, I review a movie called Earth, from 2009. This nature documentary is a 90-minute mini version of the much longer Planet Earth, produced by the BBC. The latter production took five years to make, had a $25 million budget, and employed the latest in photographic technology. The super slow motion and time lapse techniques are especially impressive. Watching the 12-month transformation of a forest in 30 seconds is nothing short of spectacular. Earth focuses on three animal families, a polar bear and two cubs, a herd of elephants, and then a mother and baby humpback whale that make a 4,000-mile migration. In between these three stories, the film intersperses takes from the longer documentary. My only complaint is that this production oversells the product with music that at times is both melodramatic and cutesy, and a very irritating and corny narration that is clearly intended for young children. If there's any nature photography that does not need hype, this big-screen version is it. Nevertheless, like its longer predecessor, Earth will still make for fantastic family viewing. The title of the film, Earth, from 2009. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem called We Wear the Mask by Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Dunbar lived from 1872. To nineteen o six. We wear the mask. We wear the mask that grins and lies. It hides our cheeks and shades our eyes. This debt we pay to human guile. With torn and bleeding hearts we smile, And mouth with myriad subtleties. Why should the world be overwise in counting all our tears and sighs? Nay, let them only see us while we wear the mask. We smile, but, O great Christ, our cries to thee from tortured souls arise. We sing, but, O, the clay is vile beneath our feet and long the mile. But let the world dream otherwise. We wear the mask. Paul Lawrence Dunbar, We wear the mask. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August the 9th, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.